0: The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Those are the words that the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon used to describe depression, which he uh, endured. And that's what we're looking at today, as Dale said, the next of the cages we've been looking at in this, in this series derived from the picture that was given to us uh, some months ago now by Jenny. I know she's here somewhere, um, which has been so uh, fantastic. So I've got my slide, which is uh, what I'd like to cover. Three things today. Um, what is depression and what is it like? Uh, what does the Bible say about it? And How can you deal with it? Or if you're helping somebody else who's going through it, how can you you help them? And above all else, I want to uh, encourage you, whether you're a sufferer or a carer, uh, you will get through this. There is stuff you can do. There is a way through. Uh, Even though you may not feel like it at the moment, my prayer is that realistic hope will be sown in your hearts so that you can believe the cage will be opened and that God will set you free. And I believe God can do that this morning. I have faith for that. So there are, there are many passages of the Bible which uh, uh, I could have chosen. Um, but I eventually believe that for various reasons and passages kept coming back, that God wanted me to bring you and to remind us of Elijah. Uh, he was a great prophet of the Old Testament, incredibly unpopular. He was given the job of telling the king it wasn't going to rain for three years. Not really very good news to have to give anybody. And he was rejected by the people And he was sent, uh, that he was sent to speak to. And he was someone who was really tested to the bounds of human endurance. So just for context, uh, immediately before the passage, which we'll have in a minute, God, through Elijah, has performed probably one of the most spectacular miracles in the Bible. And I don't have time to read you that whole story, uh, but you've got to know that Elijah was the last one of the prophets left in Israel at that time. All the others had been murdered. Okay, And the whole land was enthralled to 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, false gods. Beliefs brought into Israel... By Jezebel, who Israel's bad king Ahab uh, had gone and married. So there ended up being a showdown on Mount Carmel, and uh, there was Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Essentially, they had a competition. You've got to choose whether to follow the Lord or Baal, says Elijah. Two fairly identical stone altars are set up, a sacrifice bull on each. Elijah suggested this would be a way of deciding. Who's really God? Elijah said, I'll call on the name of the Lord, and you can call on the name of your gods, and whichever one answers by fire, that one will be God. A bit like the Cricket World Cup. Fifty overs each, see what you can do in the time available. Elijah even lets the prophets of Baal go first. That's like winning the toss, but letting the other team decide whether to bat or bowl. Pretty sporting. So for hours, the prophets of Baal do their thing. Nothing happens, and uh, while they try and call on Baal and get him to bring down fire, which of course he doesn't, Elijah isn't averse to a little bit of sledging. Not a sledge, this is a cricketing term for those who don't uh, know it. It's a bit of unkind teasing. You need to shout louder, he says. Uh, perhaps Baal is uh, in thought or busy. And in most modern translations, it then says, he's on a journey. Actually, the real translation is, he's on the bog. But that's what I'm reliably informed. Of course, nothing happens still. Then it's Elijah's turn. And he decides to make it really, really difficult. By having not four, not eight, but 12 large jars of water poured onto the sacrifice. It was like all the batsmen deciding that they're going to bat with their other hand in the team, making it so confident was he that uh, God would show up. And of course, God did show up. And the fire came down and consumed the whole sacrifice, stones, old stone altar, water and all. And then there's a gruesome bit about all the prophets of Baal getting bumped off by the people. And when Jezebel finds out what had happened to all her prophets, she goes nuts. And she sends Elijah a message and basically says, You are going to be toast within 24 hours. This, by the way, my friends, is no longer cricket at this stage. All analogies break down. She's torn up the rule book way beyond even bodyline bowling. So, this is what then happened next. If you can bring up the passage on the screen, that'd be great. So, Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Well, he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he came to a broom tree, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or is it, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Or what are you doing here? I don't know which it was, but it was one of those. (laughs) He replied, probably all of them actually, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword and I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper, a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of a cave. Bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? Um, basically, he has a chat with God, and then God tells him to go back the way he came, and he gave him a bunch of other instructions, which he which he eventually did. We'll come back to Elijah in a moment. So, what is depression actually like? Well, and what is it? Um, I've got a doctor here, so she'll put me right if I get any of this wrong. So, depression is An illness. It's a real illness. It's not just being sad or grief-stricken. One helpful way of expressing it I read is this. Grief is depression in proportion to circumstances. But depression is grief out of proportion to circumstances. So when someone close to you dies, or when there's a relationship breakup, or some big disappointment, losing a job, not getting the promotion, Or whatever there's inevitably grief in various forms but normally that works its way through and there is healing and recovery in time but with depression the grief doesn't stop and even though you may have everything you need family friends roof over your head money food generally decent health no real threats to your existence i.e. circumstances which shouldn't mean your grief carries on, it nevertheless does. So there are physical, biological, emotional, and spiritual aspects to depression. It can be mild, moderate, or severe. And it can affect people in different ways. So in preparation for today, I spoke to a number of Christians close to me who have experienced depression, and I asked them to describe what it was like uh, in their language, their metaphors. One said, it was terrifying. I had no idea what it was. I assumed it was something spiritual. It was like being a cat on a hot tin roof. Another said, it was complete mental and emotional paralysis. Even the smallest task became overwhelming, impossible. It took me days even to post a letter. Something as simple as cooking supper was too much. I couldn't do it. Another said, it was like being in a dark bottomless pit with absolutely no way out. And you're just going down and down. Another said it was like being in a pitch black house and I was desperately looking around for the light switch, stumbling from room to room, but the switches had all been removed. And everyone kept saying, just switch the light on, but they didn't understand. I couldn't find a way of doing it. Depression is a joy thief. It steals our joy, which is our inheritance. One of the gifts of the Spirit, isn't it? Joy. We can lose sight of God's face. Quite literally, we can lose the plot. We're running the race, and then all of a sudden, we have no idea where the course is, let alone the finishing line. You have a total loss of perspective. For me, I was ill a few years ago, it was like being in a totally alien landscape without a map. I had no idea where I was, where I was going, or what was going on. With all the people I spoke to as well, as in my own case, there was a big issue with sleep. Just not getting enough sleep or enough restorative sleep. We all have times when we don't get sleep. Little Jacob over there is making sure his parents are suffering that at the moment, no doubt. Um, But it's often at the heart of the vicious circle that leads to depression is the, the, the lack of sleep. Continuously just building up, because you just don't, you can't recover. Uh, and then it makes it even hard to deal with the challenges of the next day, and so on and so forth. When I was ill, with the sliver of sanity that I felt remained, being a typical lawyer, I decided to try to write down all the things that I was experiencing. I still got, got the list today. It's quite neat, actually. Um, that was upside down, Sorry. And uh, Because I was concerned to make sure that the doctor really understood exactly what was going on, because I was of course, of special case, you know. It was completely hopeless in my case, and the doctor needed to understand this. Garbage, of course, I know now, but it was totally real to me then, and that's really important. So I listed a, a heap of things. I'm not going to read them all out. You'll be relieved to hear. But the top two were deep-seated anxiety and paralysis feeling of being unable to do anything. Wanting to hide, always reacting, never taking action, being incapable of making decisions. My wife would say I suffer from that anyway, but um, uh, my memory was appalling. I was disorganized, even more than usual. Avoidance, completely blocking out things that needed to be done, absolute classic. And of course, that just makes you feel worse when you, things are piling up around you that you're not doing. I also had, a, interestingly, a list of fears I wrote down. There were 14 of them. And the top ones were just uh, not feeling I was, any, was good enough at anything, being a useless dad, useless husband, useless employee. And, and everywhere I looked, they were just demands. Yeah? you get all this sort of, this. you should be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, even my garden was shouting at me, look at me you haven't done anything here for ages. You know, I couldn't even get solace at home. There was no escape. Uh, The fear of being found out is a big one. That I was a fraud. discovered more recently that lots, that's a real common feature, but for me that this was uh, really an issue. You know, and people say, Philip, you went to a great university and you got a great degree and you've got a great job and you're good at it. And I'd say, no, 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 but you don't understand. I've just been lucky. Uh, They haven't worked out that I've, I'm not that good. I fluked it all the way through. That was my response at the time, and I genuinely believed it. And then there's catastrophizing. You just think literally everything uh, is going to go wrong, that could possibly go wrong, It's going to happen. I believed I'd lose everything. I thought I was convinced I was going to lose my job, my house, my marriage, my family, along with my sanity. Uh, All of these things felt absolutely real to me at that time no matter what anyone said. And that's really important for carers to understand. It feels absolutely real, these fears, even though it may seem objectively bonkers to you, as indeed it does to me now. It's another example, of course, all of this of the battle for the mind, which Tim was talking about last week and others have in previous weeks, all to do with fear, exaggerated fears, and also to do with untrue things, lies about ourselves, which have become real. So what does the Bible have to say about depression? Well, a lot. A huge amount more than I'd ever realized. In fact, quite a lot of the Bible dwells on this very subject, which of course is brilliant and a massive relief. just been talking about fears. So isn't it fantastic that God knows us so well that the most common commandment in the Bible, the most common encouragement is don't be afraid. Do not be scared. I'm told it appears 366 times. I haven't counted them, but it's a lot. And isn't it wonderful that God laces that in to his word throughout the Bible? Because he knows we need to read it. He knows we need to see it regularly because we are susceptible to fears. That still small voice, That gentle whisper, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Encouraging you. And then lies. Well, we know, and Tim talked about it last week, that the enemy is described in the Bible as the father of lies. He is a great liar. He's great at planting lies about yourself and about other people in our heads. And he's also described as the accuser, you know, that permanently critical voice in your head which is just criticizing the whole time, telling you that you're making you feel utterly terrible about yourself. But it does get better, guys. So we're told in 1 Peter 5, again, Tim referred to this, but it's a good passage, so I've, I'm going to mention it again, that our, den, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, like any lion, he's going to go in particular for the weak and the sickened one, which is more vulnerable. He questions whether you really are a child of God. Christians can begin to think that maybe we're somehow not actually properly saved. Or He leads you to believe that the bad things you've done and said are so bad, actually, that you are beyond redemption, that forgiveness is poss- impossible, that it's all too late, and that you don't deserve to exist even. Lies, every single one of them is a lie. Yet, at those times of depression, they loom so large they feel true or they can do. So we need to help others to do what it says in the rest of that verse from Peter, which is to resist the enemy, stand firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Bill Johnson, who's a senior pastor at Bethel Church in California, said this, and I won't do the accent, you can't afford to have thoughts about yourself which God doesn't have about you. Maybe easier said than done, but that's a great word It's really helped me. We'll come back to that a bit later. So the Bible's full of depression and people going through it, and wonderfully, that gives us hope, realistic hope, which is exactly what you need when you're depressed. We learn that uh, sin, uh, sorry, we will learn that uh, actually depression is not a sin. It's not a character flaw. It's okay to be depressed. God doesn't want us to stay like that, but there's plenty of precedent for it. So you're in great company if you're going through it. What a relief. You know, there's the story of Job. What a story. He loses literally everything and is afflicted in every conceivable way and has some really unhelpful friends who come around and tell him why he's getting it all wrong. And, you know, they're totally uh, in error in 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 the assistance they try to give. Job goes through an awful lot of ordeals, but he maintains a grain of hope. I know that my Redeemer lives, he declares, in the depth of his despair. Then there's Joseph, stuck in prison for 10 years for a crime he didn't commit. There's the author of the book of Lamentations. I often look at Lamentations. I did this last week. My goodness. It's almost wall-to-wall language of depression. Uh, the wonderful words of the hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. What a wonderful hymn that is. They're actually drawn from Lamentations 3. Prior to getting to that lovely verse, almost as if the hymn writers strained out the few words from this soup of misery. That prior to that, those verses, there's most unbelievably desperate verses describing the misery and depression that the people in the ruins and sacked Jerusalem, the Babylonians had, had attacked find themselves in there's a big emphasis in describing the darkness in which they are finding themselves and yet this i call to mind and therefore i have hope it's when it turns and then there's david of course and the other psalm writers so many to choose from yelling at god in some of the psalms about the terrible state that the writer is in Uh, look at psalm 22 psalm of david of course 18 verses of desperation followed by two verses of desperate plea. Psalm 88, uh, which isn't one of David's, is literally desperate from start to finish. Funnily enough, one of the people I spoke to about uh, what scriptures helped them said, Psalm 88 really helped them. I thought, well, completely hopeless and helpless. No, 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 it was really helpful because it described exactly how I felt. And of course, then there is Elijah in our passage today. These are all people who weren't sleeping well. They were suffering, even though they had seen God do some amazing things in the past in some cases. But they were beyond their wits end. They'd lost the plot. And in some cases, they even asked God to kill them. So suddenly, when we realize that God's word has all these examples, we realize we're, we're not alone. That alien land I was describing to you that I felt where I had no map, guess what? Other people have been there. And they've gone before me and they've walked through that land and they've had all the same experiences and in most cases far, far worse than I have. And they got through it with God's help. A seed of realistic hope can be planted when we read these things. That seed is, like any seed, is plunged into the darkness of the soil but in time it struggles up through the earth and emerges into the daylight how wonderful that god has given us so many other examples of people who've been there how wonderful he gives us their very words so that you can get inside their heads and make their words of despair and hope your own thank you lord thank you we can begin to give thanks for something in the midst of despair. And giving thanks is one of the things that it's really important to start to try to do when you're finding yourself in that place. So when you find yourself hiding in that cave of your own, you know that someone as great and God-fearing and mighty and everything else as Elijah has been there before you and felt exactly the same. Okay. In spite of the incredible miracle that God had used him to perform only hours before, Elijah was really, really scared. He was terrified. He ran away to hide. He was exhausted. He was paralyzed by anxiety. He told God he'd had enough and even asked God to take his life. End it, Lord. He was in the bottomless pit at the valley bottom, perhaps in that very valley of the shadow of death, which David talks about in Psalm 23. Alone, isolated, hunted. But the important thing is he cried out to God. And he asked him to intervene. And guess what? God heard him. And he helped him. And he didn't pluck him out of the situation. He helped him through it. You remember, he had to go back where he had come from with God's help. Don't you love the question that God asks him, which I asked in many different ways a moment ago when he's in the cave? What are you doing here, Elijah? you kind of think that God's scratching his head and thinking, uh, wait a minute, do you remember what happened yesterday? And that encourages us as well. God is merciful and kind and gentle with Elijah and tells him to come out into his presence, come out of the cave into his presence. And then you have the bit about the wind and the earthquake and the fire, huge, powerful things. But God isn't, we are told, in any of those things at that moment. No, it's the still, small voice, the soft whisper. That is how God chooses to speak to the depressed and terrified Elijah. The Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that is how he still deals with us today, just as he did with Elijah. He is gentle, he is kind, he is merciful. And of course, there's one fairly important person who I I haven't mentioned so far, the one who's described by Isaiah in the passage that was read out in church last week as the man of sorrows himself, Jesus, of course. He is actually our truest and closest companion in any affliction that you're going through, including depression and anxiety, because he's the only one to have experienced actual separation from God, In Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hadn't actually forsaken David who wrote that psalm. But when Jesus cried it out on the cross, God the Father had turned his face away from him, we read, because of the sin, our sin, that was on Jesus at that moment. So we can find a place to rest in the storyline of Jesus. He's He's an ally. He's a hero. He's a fellow sufferer, garden of Gethsemane. I am grieved unto death, he says, isn't he? Almost unto death. A friend and a saviour. He gives us realistic hope. Like the best ever leader, and there's a lot about leadership at the moment, isn't there, in the press, but we won't go into that. He not only leads from the front, he's gone before and faced the worst of the enemy fire and overcome it. And we just have to walk in his footsteps. I say just. It's not always easy, is it? As one preacher put it, where we ordinary mourners and depression sufferers sip at the bowl of sorrow, Jesus has drained it dry. So, how do we get through depression or help somebody else through it? Well, I believe that God can heal anyone. He can do it dramatically. He can set people free here and now from this affliction. I've got faith for that. Uh, And I I pray that you know, there are people here who can be released this morning. It can also take time, a bit of a journey, bit of a process. For carers, it's really hard. It's really hard. I was really hard work for my wife. Slow your judgment down if you can. Don't say anything like, pull yourself together, snap out of it. If you really believed in God, you wouldn't be depressed. Not really terribly helpful things to say you might have realized. Uh, But you can understand the frustration of someone who is seeing somebody else go through this and it just doesn't make sense. Really hard to understand the prison if you haven't yourself been a prisoner. Get others to help you as well as a carer. You need so much compassion. You need so much patience. You'll need God's strength with that too. Try and sit in the ashes with the person if you can. Sometimes just not talking. People went for walks with me. I remember one in particular when I, my lovely daughter Izzy put me for a walk, and I don't think I was able to say a single thing on that walk. I just walked, and she had the maturity and sensitivity just to hang out with me, just walk and just be there, and it was just what was needed at that particular moment. And other people helped as well. I went for a lovely walk with Roy, a lovely walk with Tim, another one with quids. I had coffee with Kevin and Miles and others. Little moments of sanity and nor- almost normality um, amidst everything else. And of course, Amanda was a rock and looked after me and kept everything going in the family and the home. And my kids were fantastic as well, and I really valued their prayers. Very humbling to have your kids praying for you. It should be the other way around, you feel, but actually, wow, did I learn something. And yeah, They're my, amongst my best friends now. But make sure as a carer you look after yourself too because you don't want to go in that cage along with the other person. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. For sufferers, a few practical things, um, both from my own experience and from others I've spoken to, medication. There's this strange thing, I think, amongst Christians, some Christians, that there's something wrong about needing or taking medication, antidepressants or whatever for, a, for an illness, a mental illness, uh, I was probably one of them as well. Mind over matter, what's wrong with you? You, know, you should be able, you know, able to cope with it. I hate taking medication, uh, ask Amanda. But actually, when you break your leg, you wouldn't think twice about having to put it in a brace uh, or a plaster or whatever's used these days. Depression is no different, really. Uh, when you're not sleeping and your mind is totally fried, you need to listen to the doctors and trust them to help you with something that will address your illness. I struggled a bit. I had to try various different antidepressants till I found one that kind of worked. Uh, you know, and there are side effects sometimes, and you do feel a bit numb, but sometimes you just need to be numb. You need to numb the pain just for a, for a period so you can recover. It helped a bit with sleep. If you're getting your sleep, you can begin to, think, to start to think a little less wonkily than you have done, and maybe allow a little bit of realistic hope back in. There's this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, to get that. And this looks at why you are feeling the way you are. What are the beliefs you're carrying that leads you to being the depressed person you are and having this depressed mood? So silly example. Maybe you're talking to a group of people and one of them starts yawning. When you're depressed, you automatically default is to say to yourself, "They're bored. I am boring." I am rubbish at talking to people, I am useless, I'm no good. I should go and jump down a well. What CBT does is to help you look at it in a different way. Actually, why else might they be yawning? Perhaps a small person has been keeping them up awake all night. Or maybe they've had a hard night partying. Or maybe they themselves are struggling with sleep, poor sleep. Sorry to keep you awake, Tim. I'm just teasing. Um, It confronts your wrong beliefs about yourself and challenges you to think about the things differently in a very practical way. It also encourages you to focus on the things that you're good at and consequently enjoy doing, which make you feel better. So if you're a round peg in a square hole, sometimes that can lead you to being very stressed. You find ways of being able to do more of the stuff you're really good at and less of the stuff which you find really hard which is causing your major anxiety and unhappiness. That way you could at least build some resilience. I always think it's particularly hard if you're at school. Um, If you're not academic and you find stuff difficult. Our school system is not particularly helpful to everybody uh, as it might be. So if you're for example a creative type and perhaps less good at the core subjects of maths, English and science, It can be quite depressing spending so much of your time being forced to do the things which you really, really struggle with. And you have less of the time to do those subjects, maybe like art and music and drama and things like that, where you can actually thrive and be creative and gain confidence uh, and have the opportunity to think, I can actually be good at something. So sleep is something you need to sort out as well. Exercise, so important. We're not meant to sit inside staring at devices and computers and uh, sitting at desks having meetings all the time. Uh, very, very, very easy to get into bad habits and not to exercise, especially in this very demanding world we live in. Find something you enjoy doing. Uh, you feel so much better if you regularly get your body working, whether it's going for a walk, a run, a swim, cycle, the gym, tennis whatever, team sport, something you can do regularly which will help you burn up the cortisol, that stress drug that is going around your body which needs using up and will help you release some endorphins and help you feel physically better. And when you come back to a task, suddenly you feel more refreshed. I now run twice a week, once uh, during, the, during the week at work and once at the weekend, um, and it's great. I have a few goals, a few PBs. I've been doing 5Ks and 10Ks and even gonna do the first half marathon later this year. Um, if all goes well. And consider doing it with somebody else as well to encourage you. Uh, then there's obvious things like food. You know, make sure you're eating sensibly. Make sure you are eating. I forgot, was regularly going without lunch. I was just working through, I just forgot, and about half past four I think, oh, I'm a bit hungry. And then I'd probably go and eat something, you know, a bag of cheddar cheeses or something which isn't very sensible. I used to be eating fresh fruit, you know, vegetables, fruit, and things like that. A man was always very good at preparing a lovely meal in the evening, so I was, getting, I was fortunate I was getting that, but not everybody does. So make sure you are eating sensibly at regular times. Don't skip meals uh, unless you've got a very good reason for doing that. Drinking water. I had to learn to drink water. I'm not someone who naturally thinks I want to drink water. Um, You do need to replenish the liquid in in your body. It stops you getting headaches, keeps you refreshed, helps you thinking straight. And be sensible, obviously, about caffeine and alcohol. sound like I'm doing Chris's course here. Um, And too much of those things can obviously stop you sleeping as well. Friends. Being sociable. Planning time with friends. Even if you don't feel like it, make yourself do some things. Uh, There may be other people who would actually enjoy your company. Yes, really, even in your state. Actually you just, you, just you being there is nice for some people. So look out for one another. Fun. really important to plan some fun. So you may not feel like it, but if there's some things you enjoy doing, like the theater or the cinema, or if it's not the exercise which you're already doing, which is really fun, isn't it? Uh, then, then make sure you're planning set that into your schedule. You know, block it out, doing this with, with friends or whatever. Freedom in Christ: big advert. That was a wonderful course which helped me tremendously. Uh, this was, I think, the best thing I did of all. Uh, basically, a Christian version of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy I was talking about earlier. So while CBT uh, is a bit like vanilla ice cream, I suppose. freedom in Christ is like going into a whole Italian gelateria with all the flavors and toppings, so much to feast on and nourish you, assuming you like ice cream. you have to use a different analogy if you don't. Uh, and what freedom in Christ does is to look at what God says is true about you and me and what's not. So back to Bill Johnson again, you can't afford to have thoughts about yourself that God doesn't have about you. I mean, what a waste of time to be living with a lie about yourself when you could be free from it and when it's not true. It gives you freedom in Christ because I felt scriptures which are obviously the thing that it's based on gives you the keys to the cage you can open the door and then contemplate stepping outside it replaces the lies with the truth god doesn't think you're rubbish or useless or a write-off or not worthy of living you're a christian he says. you're a child of god he says you've been justified you belong to god You've been redeemed and forgiven all your sins. Salvation is available. You only have to ask for those of you who have not become Christians. It's the best free gift ever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're free from condemnation. You're born of God. And the evil one cannot touch you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, strengthens you. You may not be able to internalize all of that stuff straight off, but these are all things uh, said about you in the bible you are accepted you are secure you are significant check out freedom in christ god says we are royalty so why are we going around with a mindset as if we're beggars a few final words be encouraged you will get better you will go stronger grow stronger you'll be able to bless others in time i never believed i'd be standing here back when i was ill I really hope this might help a few people. There is realistic hope. We may only see through a glass darkly, as the Bible says at the moment, but it'll come clear in time. For now, just get through today. Cry out to God. That is prayer. And try not to catastrophize. Catch yourself when you're doing it and turn it into a prayer, even a yelly one. Use the Psalms, Psalms 23, 22, 77, 91, they're all great psalms. Pray them and say them out loud. There is power in the word of God. It doesn't return to him empty. That's what scripture says. So speak out words which have been given to you. And remember, you're in great company. Others have trodden this road before you, like Elijah, and lent on the promises of God. Ask him to make them real for you as well. And try to thank God whenever you can. An attitude of gratitude. Make it a habit. Uh, do it as an act of obedience, maybe, to begin with. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, or whenever. A way of showing God that you're trying. Yeah? The day may have been rubbish in many ways, but what things can you thank God for? Maybe that smile from a child. Cuddle with Jacob. Keep talking about him. Sorry, Jacob. That little card someone gave you. That drawing from a small person, that beautiful view, warmth of the sun, even the rain, that good friend, the lovely food that you've got on your plate. Remember, God is your Heavenly Father, as Dale was saying earlier, it's Father's Day. He's your dad. Jesus said, when you pray, his disciples said, what do we, How do we pray? He said, Our Father, what a great way to start. Daddy, have a Father. Paint. Draw, create, make music, do something that expresses how you're feeling and how you want to feel and what's going on. It may be very helpful to people and to yourself. Talk to trusted friends. Let them pray for you if you can. And be encouraged, again, that others, like Elijah and even Jesus, have walked this past and come through. And allow yourself time to believe that you can make it too, with God's help, of course. God may be sewing some really dark threads in the tapestry of your life, but those dark colors really do set off the golden threads which are being overlaid at the same time so beautifully and so powerfully. And it's often in the valley bottoms, in the cave, or in the pit that we learn our most precious lessons about God's love for us and the love of others for us. Do freedom in Christ go out and stand at the mouth of your cave and listen for that still small voice, God's gentle whisper. Charles Spurgeon looked back at his depressive illness afterwards and said this, I'm grateful to God that I've undergone this fearful depression. I know the borders of despair and the horrible brink of that gulf of darkness into which my feet have almost gone. Why am I so grateful? Because hundreds of times, I've been able to give a helpful grip to others who have come into that same condition, which grip I would not have given if I hadn't known their deep despondency. Isn't that lovely? And finally, let me just leave you with this scripture, which you know very well. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What shall we say in response? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in the whole of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.